Let's have a word of prayer if we might. Uh, I'd like to pray as we begin and just ask God's blessing and, and really ask His help uh, as, uh, as I preach this morning and share with you a message from the Word of God. And so I'd like to just begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are this morning uh, gathered together because we have a desire to hear and understand your word. We have a desire to sing songs that exalt you. We have a desire to be ministered to by your Holy Spirit. And I pray this morning that you would honor those desires, that you would see in us the faith, though it may be weak, though it may be stretched at times. The Lord, see in our hearts our genuine love and desire for you as your children, and that you would graciously meet with us this morning as you've promised to do. Lord, I pray that you would use your word as you've also promised to do. That your word will never return to you void, but will always accomplish the work that you've sent it to do. And so I pray this morning that even as I speak, your word would be powerful and your spirit would move in our hearts to accomplish your will. Lord, recognize that it's not in the man who speaks it, but it's your truth and your word that is powerful. And so I pray that you would be exalted and magnified in and through me as I speak this morning, and that each one of us would be committed to responding to the word of God in whatever way is necessary, be willing to submit ourselves to you and to your word. We'll thank you for that. And we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Break from our series in the Psalms. Don't worry, we'll get back to the Psalms uh, soon enough. I just, as an aside, I have to admit, because you know, we're such creatures of habit, that this week has been very difficult for me because I have, over the last year, really gotten into studying the Psalms and into a certain kind of mode of thinking and pattern. And then I had to break that this week and try something else, and it was very difficult to do. Um, but I'm thankful God is good. And we're going to begin this series, Building a New Testament Church. And this series is, is really what we're going to do is we're going to consider our six core values of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Now, there are a number of challenges that we face in doing a study like this, and I'm going to try my best to avoid the pitfalls that I think are all around us. One of the dangers is that we may confuse our core values with other things. What do I mean by that? Well, I need to define the term so we can begin all on the same page. What are core values? Well, core values are guiding principles that dictate behavior and action. Core values, they're guiding principles that dictate behavior and action. Now, it's interesting, the language of core values actually comes from the business world. 
uh, a book that was published in 1994, written by Jim Collins and Jerry Porras, called Built to Last. And in that book, they argued that many of the best companies in the world lived by a set of principles that guided all of their decision making and helped them focus their goal, focus on their goals with a minimum of wasted effort. Now, I just, just to allay your fears right now, okay, we haven't traded in the Bible for a book about business culture, okay, or anything like that. So don't fear, all right? I actually think even though the terminology of core values either was coined by these men or certainly made popular by them, I think the principal idea of this goes way farther back than that. In fact, I believe Jesus taught very directly on this subject nearly 2,000 years ago. At any rate, I want to explain what I said about the dangers that, that we face. One of the dangers is that when we talk about core values, um, rather, I'm sorry, we can talk about core values in terms not of the actual values that we have as a church, the actual values that, that uh, <clears throat> determine or shape our decision making, but sometimes it's possible for us to talk about the ideal values. That, that shape our thinking, the things that we think should guide our behavior. Uh, for instance, a church might say that gospel evangelism is a core value because they want to be evangelistic. And if you were to talk with them, they'd say, yes, one of our core values is evangelism, gospel evangelism. We want to reach out and we want to be evangelistic. But if you actually look at the church and the activity of the people in the church, what you find is that they don't actually engage anyone in conversations about the gospel. And so they may talk about evangelist, uh, gospel evangelism as a core value, but it's not really a core value. You see, core values are things that actually shape our decisions, that actually drive our actions. And so it's possible for us to speak about core values, but instead to substitute what might be called aspirational values, things that we want to be true about our church but are not actually true about our church. Another danger that we face is that we can affirm a set of biblical core values but not realize that we don't actually abide by those values. Instead, we might find that we abide by an entirely different set of values without even realizing it. These are called accidental values. Okay? And accidental values are things that, that, that kind of come in. Many times they, they happen to have, um, they happen to be related to kind of shared connections, the, the things, the interests of people in the church. There's several different things. I'll give you some examples of some accidental values. Financial security is one. Some churches, they may talk about how they're focused on, on worshiping God and on evangelizing the lost, but when you look at how they make decisions, financial security becomes the number one driving factor. You'll, you'll, you'll see in some churches where the thought process is that we have to have money in the bank just in case a need arises. Well, financial security can be an accidental value. They won't 
say that that's what the value is. They'll say it's this, that, or the other thing, but when push comes to shove, that's what drives the decision making. Or here's another one. Uh, you'll like this one. Comfortable services, right? Comfortable services. Everything's okay. As long as we do things the same way we've always done them and nothing new or unfamiliar is ever introduced. As long as we don't rock the boat, then everybody will be happy because we want comfort. We want what's familiar, what's comfortable. And again, in many churches, they wouldn't tell you that this is a core value, but if you look at the way that they act and you look at the decisions they make, this is actually a core value, I would argue. It's an accidental value. It's not intentional. It's not something they went about and said, we want to determine to have a church where comfort is the main thing. But in practice, that's what you have. Or here's one. A homogenous congregation. We, we love new people as long as they're like us. As long as they don't change the makeup of our congregation. We love them and we want them here. So in some churches, they may talk about gospel evangelism or discipleship as core values. And they'll do that. They'll, they'll embrace that as long as it affirms the dynamic and the makeup of the church as it already is. And so we can, we can fall into that trap, okay, of, of, act, of talking about core values but actually embracing an entirely different set of values, accidental values. I want to avoid these things. What makes the discussion of core values in the church different from the business world, though, is this. We don't get to pick and choose what we put at the center. You see, if you're going to start a business, you can say, well, I'm going to start a business, and I value these things, and so these will be the core values of my business, and your business will reflect who you are and what you think is important. But that could be anything. It could be anything that happens to be important to you. And maybe your competitor values different things. And so they're going to have a different set of core values. The problem is when we're talking about the church, there's one fundamental difference between a business you may start and the church. And that is the church does not get to pick and choose what our values are going to be. We have a head. And our head has given us values. He has established a set of values and principles that are to be the core. And so we are not allowed to substitute any other values for the ones that God has given. Now, before we can talk about our church's core values, and we will do that, but before we can do that, we have to talk about something else. And this is really the question that's before us today. What are your own personal core values? What are your own personal core values? What are the principles which guide your thoughts, your words, and your actions? This is a subject that I believe Jesus teaches on specifically, and we're going to talk about that um, from Matthew chapter 6 in a few minutes. But before we get into that subject directly, I'd like for you to just consider several examples from scripture where we see 
evidence of a man's core values on display. And, and if you want to try and turn to these passages, you can. I'm just going to reference them, and I've written out quotes, so I don't even have to turn my own Bible to them today, but just to make it quick. But uh, consider, for example, Genesis 39. Joseph, in Genesis 39, we find Joseph as a slave in Egypt living in the home of a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife approached Joseph and made advances toward him. And what we see in Genesis 39 is Joseph resisting her sinful advances. And in Genesis 39 and verse 9, we hear this from Joseph's own lips. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph's response to the temptation of Potiphar's wife was, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? God. That statement gives us insight into one of Joseph's core values. You want to know what it was? Joseph's core value? Righteousness. Joseph valued righteousness. Not his own righteousness, but God's righteousness. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph believed that God was absolutely righteous. And Joseph was committed to righteousness because he valued the righteousness of God. This is Joseph's core value. When the temptation came, he responded the way he did because he valued righteousness more than he valued pleasure, more than he valued personal gain or whatever else. Now, there's another example from the book of Genesis. It's one that's not quite so positive. In Genesis 13, we read about Abraham and Lot. And Abraham and Lot parted ways because they couldn't stay together. They had too many flocks and herds and servants, and it was very difficult. There was a lot of conflict, and so they decided the best thing for us to do to keep the peace is for us to split up. And Abraham says, Lot, you go one way, and I'll go the other. I, I love you. I care about you. I don't want to have bad relations with you, so let's part ways so we can be friends. Great wisdom on Abraham's part. But in Genesis 13, verses 10 through 13, we read this about Lot. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now what was Lot's core value? What was the thing that drove his decision making? What was the thing that caused him to choose the plains of Jordan to the east. Well, quite frankly, it's this. Personal success. Right? I mean, Lot looked out there and he saw this, this great fields and they were green and it was great. It was the best opportunity for him to gain wealth and success. He wanted influence and power and wealth and that was where his opportunity lied. But you know what he didn't take into consideration? He didn't take into consideration the wickedness of the people of Sodom, the wickedness of the people of Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. 
He valued the chance to get wealth and success so much that he failed to take into consideration the pollution that he was entering into by, by pursuing that. You see, we can see what his decision-making process was here, and we realize that what Lot valued, contrary to Joseph, wasn't righteousness, but what Lot valued was success. And if you know the end of the story, we know that it didn't end well at all for him. He lost everything, including his family and his reputation because of it. Now, David gives us an interesting look into his own core values on a couple of different occasions. Um, of course, in 1 Samuel 17, we have the very famous account of David when he went out to do battle with Goliath. And you remember the situation there. Goliath was a giant, and for 40 days, he came out onto the battlefield, and he mocked the people of God, and he mocked the Lord, right? And David, this teenage boy, stepped out onto the battlefield to challenge him, not even wearing armor, not even with any advanced weaponry of warfare, just with a sling, which, by the way, wasn't a child's slingshot. It was a weapon of war. It was a, a serious weapon. But in comparison to the spear and the sword and the shield of Goliath, it was kind of a joke. At least that's the way Goliath thought of it, right? And so Goliath mocked David, too. But in 1 Samuel 17, verses 45 to 47, David said this, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. What an incredible statement of faith. But it shows us something here. It shows us something about what was driving David's actions. What was the value, the thing that pushed David to do this? Well, I think it was this, the fear of God. David had an understanding of the fear of the Lord. He was so firmly committed to honoring God that he was willing to fight to the death with a battle-hardened warrior, even though he was just a teenager himself. The fear of God motivated David. It was a core value. It drove him to the battlefield to fight against this ungodly Philistine. But there's something else that we see too in 1 Samuel 24. There, David and his men had Saul dead to rights inside of a cave. All David would have had to do was give the word and Saul's life would have been snuffed out and David had already been anointed king by Samuel. He could have ascended the throne. He could have taken over. Instead, we find that he, he cuts off the hem of Saul's robe. And we read this in 1 Samuel 24. David responded by saying this, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. Well, what was it that held David's hand? What was it that kept David back from attacking Saul? Well, it was the same value. 
You see, the fear of God is what drove David out on the battlefield to, to, to fight against Goliath. But when it came to Saul, the fear of God is what caused David to stop, restraining him from harming the king. Because David recognized that Saul had been chosen by God and was anointed by God, and he was not going to attack him, not because of Saul, but out of the fear of God. And so this is a glimpse here into one of the core values of David's life. You see, we see on display by the actions and the words and attitudes of these biblical men what their values were. And there's others we don't have time to go into today. You could take a look at Daniel, for instance. In Daniel 1 and verse 8, we read about his commitment to purity before God. He valued that far more than he valued success or even his personal safety. You could read about Paul. In the New Testament, who spoke about knowing Christ and preaching the gospel as core values. Consider the young man Demas. Paul said that he forsook him because he loved this present world. And of course, we could study the life of Christ. And Christ on numerous occasions spoke about his purpose and coming. And he spoke about his purpose to do the will of God, to glorify God, and to save the lost. I think it's pretty obvious as we look at these examples that these men, their values determine their choices. Ultimately, their values determine whether or not they please God. And we have some positive and negative examples. So I, think, I don't think it's possible for us to exaggerate the importance of your personal core values. What are the things that you, that you take as the center of your, of your whole value system? How do you determine and decide what to do? And I think Jesus teaches on this subject in Matthew chapter 6. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 6. In verse 1, Jesus says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may have glory of men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. You see, there's a very real danger here, Jesus points to, that when we engage in good works, we would do them because we value attention, because we value public acclaim, rather than out of a desire to serve and please the Lord. Do you see how... The value here makes the difference. If we value public acclaim and attention, then Jesus says what we'll do is we'll do these good works, but we'll do them with the wrong motivation. We'll do them out of a desire to receive the praise of men. Jesus said the same values can pollute our public prayers. Verse 5, he says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. Why? That they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. He also talked about fasting down in verse 16. 
And he says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so you do not appear to, be men, to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in secret, in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And I think as we look at the first half of this chapter, what we see is one driving point, and it's this, and it really helps us to see and define what I think our first core value needs to be, and it's this, sincere worship. We ought to value sincere worship above public acclaim. We ought to value the praise of God more than the praise of men. This ought to be the thing that drives us. A desire for sincere worship. I, I think this is why we see the Lord's Prayer right in the middle of these verses that we read. Because the Lord's Prayer is all about exalting God's name. Right? Notice what he says there in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is sincere worship. Jesus taught his disciples to pray because he understood the importance of the value of sincere worship in our hearts. You see, when we have this value of sincere worship, we magnify the Lord. Just like John the Baptist, when he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, it's not about getting attention for myself. It's about worshiping and praising and honoring the Lord. Of course, uh, one commentator that I read this week says that if we're going to pray for his kingdom to come and we're going to pray for his will to be done on earth in the future, we have to live according to that desire right now. And he warns us that only those who bring forth the fruit of repentance, showing themselves ready for the kingdom, dare genuinely pray for his kingdom to come. So do you dare? Do you dare today to pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth even as it is in heaven? If you're truly looking forward to his coming and all that his kingdom involves, then I dare say you will value sincere worship today. This will matter to you. And this value of sincere worship has a definite effect on your actions, on your choices. If this is a core value, if this is something that is primary in your heart and your life, then it will impact what you say and what you do. And the first thing is this. When you value sincere worship, you will do good works in secret, even forgetting yourself that you have done them. 
By the way, I think that's what he means when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Have you, have you ever puzzled that before? Have you ever wondered what he meant by that? Because it seems kind of impossible for you to do something and your left hand not know what your right hand is doing. I mean, kind of by definition, by default, they're on the same body, they're connected to the same brain. You can't do one without the other. But I think what he's suggesting here is that when you do something good, forget about it. You see, it's not time after you've done the good work for you to pat yourself on the back, give yourself an attaboy. Aren't I such a good Christian? Didn't God give me pleased with me? See, it's not even just the acclaim of others, but it's our own acclaim that Jesus says we shouldn't be seeking. We shouldn't do good works to impress others, nor should we do good works to impress ourselves. So we can go around even in our own heart and our own mind in the, the little world that we live in and say how good I am and how nice I am and how good I've done for other people. And just, I keep my list. I've got all the things I did last week that were really nice. And I remember all those things because I tell myself about them and I use them to build myself up. Jesus says, no, 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 when you do it, forget about it. Your left hand shouldn't even know what your right hand is doing. It should be out of your mind. Why? Because you will be rewarded by your Father in heaven. I read a reference to it this week when Jesus talks about um, those people who come before him in heaven and say, when did we see you blind? When did, or when did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? When did we do anything for you? And he'll say, well, when you did it to the to the least of these, you did it to me. And it's almost as if there will be believers who will stand before God uh, on that day and he will say, don't you remember doing this? No, I don't remember. Well, good. You did it for me. I reward you for it. It's not about you. You, you. You're not responsible to keep track of a record of all the good things you've done so you can make sure to get credit for them and get to heaven. <laughs> no. We, we do them for the Lord. See, we value sincere worship, so we will keep it secret even from ourselves. And, I, and I'm not saying that in some sort of silly way, like, you know, you have to trick yourself. I'm just saying that I think what Jesus is saying to, you, to us here is that we don't dwell on these things. We don't focus on these things with our minds and our hearts. We just do them. We just do the good because we love the Lord. And we just forget about it. We just let him keep track, you know, and we'll just keep doing good. That's the first thing. The second impact is this, and, 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 and I'm just taking these out of the passage because that's what Jesus said there in the first five verses, or the first in verse four, right? To do it in secret and let your heavenly Father reward you. When he talks about doing good works. When he talks about prayer. Well, what is this? When you value sincere worship, you will pray in private before you pray in public. You'll pray in private before we pray in public, uh, it's very, very clear from the context here that Jesus is not suggesting we shouldn't pray in public. Because he says that here, right? I mean, you might read it this way. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the street corners, be seen of men. But you, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room. When you shut your door, pray to your Father who's in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so we'll say, well, here's what you have to do. You can't ever pray in public, can't ever pray in front of other people, because if you do, you might be praying to be seen as men, so you better pray in private. You better set off a, a room in your house or cordon off a prayer closet or something and go into there and just pray. And don't ever, don't ever let anybody catch you praying, just, just you know, because you don't want to be seen by men, you gotta you gotta have your own private place. Well, I don't think what Jesus is saying here is it's wrong to pray in public. I can prove it. Look at what he says in the Lord's Prayer. We already read it. The language of it is very clear. Our Father in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. These are, by the way, in case you're, you're, you're fuzzy on grammar, these are plural pronouns, right? Our Father, we, us. This is public prayer. <laughs> when Jesus is telling them how to pray, this is a public prayer. Pray this together for the congregation. It, it, it's one of the, and I don't know if you noticed this, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to make a big thing out of this, but if you, if you listen and you notice when I pray in church, I try really hard to pray and use plural pronouns. I try really hard not to use I or me. I want to pray we and us and our. Why? Because we're praying together. Okay? I'm, I'm praying on purpose so that you can enter into that prayer. It's, it's a public corporate prayer. That's the idea. And so Jesus is not prohibiting public prayer. But clearly, the example here of the hypocrite, this is not a guy who goes and prays in his house and then happens to be found on the street praying. This is somebody that the only place he prays is out on the street because he wants to guarantee that every time he prays, he gets credit for it. So I think the principle here is pray first privately. Pray first on your own to the Lord. So that, and when you pray publicly, it's simply a, a continuation, an extension of the worship that you've already been offering the Lord by value of your prayer to him. This is why we've got to deal with our own heart first. Then we can deal with the church and our corporate meetings and what do we do. Private, uh, rather public prayer is not a substitute for private prayer. We must engage in prayer as an act of worship between us and God when nobody else sees. That's sincere worship. Then when we pray publicly, that can be worship as well. But it has to start privately. Sincere worship, if that's a value, it's going to affect how you pray. And then, of course, Jesus talks about fasting. He talks about fasting in verses 16 through 18. And I don't want to really get into a whole lot of details in fasting here other than just to say that uh, there's no commands in the New Testament for us to fast. So I don't think there's a direct correlation of responding just to fasting. I think there's a general principle here because the purpose of fasting is devoting yourself to the Lord. Well, how can you devote yourself to the Lord when you go out of your way to make sure everybody knows you're doing it? Oh, I'm going to devote myself to the Lord this week. I'm going to tell you all right now. I'm going to give up. No, I'm going to give up TV for a week. You're not going to, no, I'm not going to just devote myself to the Lord. No sweets this week. I'm just giving them up for the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm going to devote myself to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you all about it because you all need to know. And then all week long I'm going to go, around, oh boy, it's hard, but I'm going to make it through somehow. I'm so bored without my TV, I don't know what to do, but I'll make it through somehow. Whatever. But that's what Jesus talks about here. The guy who goes about fasting and he goes around with this terrible look on his face like he's in pain. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Jesus says, wash your face. Anoint yourself with oil. Take care of yourself so when you walk down the street, nobody knows your fast. Why? Because God knows. 
See, if you're sincerely devoting yourself to the Lord, if you value sincere worship, to devote yourself to the Lord without bringing attention to your sacrifice. Okay. I think this is a, 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 an example, or an example of this would be Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Right? They sold the land, and they went to give money to the church, and it would have been fine. Peter even tells them, it would have been perfectly fine for you to sell that land, write a check for a portion of the money, give it a keep back some for yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. You were perfectly in your right to do that, and God would have been pleased with that. But you had to come and make a show of it. You had to come and show how devoted you were to God by making sure everybody knew the great sacrifice you had made. And Peter says, you have lied. You have deceived the Holy Spirit of God. And the judgment was very severe. Now we have to ask ourselves sometimes, in our social media culture, if something never gets posted onto Facebook, did it really happen? We talk about things being Facebook official, you know? Well, I, you know, I knew about it, but I couldn't say anything because it wasn't on Facebook yet. You know? We may trick ourselves, by the way, if we're not careful, into thinking that we're just sharing something to encourage others. But often, simply, we're trying to impress others with our great spirituality. Okay. I think it's something called humble bragging. If that's the case, by the way, then the likes that you receive on Facebook will be the only reward you ever see for that. You're better off not doing it. But when we value sincere worship, it changes us. It affects how we act. It changes what we do and how we do it. But Jesus doesn't stop just with the values that underlie our acts of worship. He also tackles another sacred cow in the second half of chapter 6. Notice what he says in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, for many people, earthly possessions and wealth, those are a core value. Every decision Every thought, every action has to involve either getting or keeping wealth. Jesus goes right to the heart of that kind of thinking. He questions the entire value system. I mean, think about it. Are you going to chase after and value as a highest treasure, the most important thing, things that are uh, temporary, things that are fleeting, things that are corruptible and easily stolen? Are, are those really going to be the most important things? Are you going to value those more than heavenly treasures, which are lasting and eternal and never fade away? It's almost the definition of foolishness. Really. It's almost the definition of foolishness to chase after earthly wealth, to make getting and keeping treasure your most important thing. It's like a child that chooses a string of, of toy pearls over the real thing. 
But that's what we do. So many, so many people uh, in this world, that's all that matters is getting and keeping wealth. I think we're familiar with verse 24 where Jesus says, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, God and money. You have to choose. There's a core value at stake here. And I think it's best described this way. Single-minded devotion. And so we value, and I think it's important, I think it's right, biblical, for us to value sincere worship. But it's also right for us to value single-minded devotion to the Lord. Let me put it as simply as I can. If you are constantly worried about money, how to get it and how to keep it, then you are not devoting yourself to the Lord. But to be a disciple of Christ requires that we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's what Jesus says in verse 33. How is it possible for us to have this single-minded focus on the kingdom and righteousness of God? Well, first of all, we've already kind of read this in verses 19 to 24, but it's this. You have to choose to serve the Lord. You have to choose today to serve the Lord. You have to choose heavenly treasures over earthly ones. And Jesus tells us that where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. So you have to choose to you have to choose heavenly treasures over earthly ones so that your heart will be set on heaven and not on the earth. And your eye will be filled with light rather than darkness. You can't serve God and serve money at the same time. It can't be done. You have to make a choice. Choose to serve the Lord. Is it really that simple? Yeah. Yeah. You need to make a choice right here, right now. You need to choose. God, I'm serving you. I'm not going to serve money. I'm not going to chase that. I'm not going to chase after possessions and wealth. I'm going to choose you. But there's another way that we develop single-minded devotion to God, and that's found in verses 25 to 34. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all those things. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The issue here is worry. You see, it's one thing to say, I'm not going to serve money, I'm not going to serve possessions and wealth instead i'm going to choose to serve the lord that's good that's good that's that's essential we have to do that but then we struggle with worry there's many things that we worry about we worry about what we're going to eat and drink we worry about what we're going to wear we especially worry about what's going to happen tomorrow Jesus challenges us to to do the exact opposite. And here is another choice we have to make. We have to choose to trust the Lord. We have to choose to trust the Lord. And again, it just makes sense that we should do this. Think about the birds for a minute. When have you seen them planting seeds? When have you seen them weeding? When have you seen them watering the fields? When do you see them harvesting their crops? Never, right? But do they go hungry? No. God the Father watches over them from heaven. And he makes sure they have enough food to eat. Don't you think he can feed you? Or think about the lilies of the field. Jesus, of course, was, was uh, 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 teaching this on, uh, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. He was on a mountainside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Um, probably Jesus was down toward the shore of the sea, speaking up the hill side of the mountain. It would produce kind of a natural amphitheater effect. Um, and even as he said this, he may have pointed out to the hillsides because on the hills around the Sea, around the sea of Galilee, there are wildflowers that pop up all, every year. And the, the hills get, get covered with wildflowers that grow. And it seems that Jesus is probably referring to those. Have you ever seen wildflowers spinning thread? Have you ever seen one sewing clothes for itself? Of course not. But when you look at them, do you notice their incredible beauty, the the splendor that they have? I mean, don't, don't you marvel when you drive past a field filled with wildflowers? Don't you, don't you stop and marvel at that? Nobody planted them. Nobody planned them. They just came up, right? I mean, we take pictures of them and make calendars out of them, for crying out loud. We all do this. Well, if God watches over the wildflowers, which only bloom for a brief time and then they fade away, then don't you think he can provide you with clothing and shelter and every other necessary thing? You see, it's completely reasonable for you to trust the Lord It's completely reasonable for you to choose to trust God instead of worrying about all these things. The point of these comparisons that Jesus makes is that if we would simply observe the natural world, it would put our fears to rest because there's ample reason to trust the Lord. So here I have a challenge for you. Do you want to act like a pagan? Do you want to act like an unbeliever? Well, then spend your time worrying about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. Jesus said that here. 
in verse 32. These are all the things the Gentiles seek after. These are the things that unbelievers worry about. But if you know the Lord, if you know the Lord, then you know that he is loving and he is kind and he is good. You know that he's wise. That he knows everything you need before you even have a chance to ask him. So don't spend your time worrying about the future because there's already enough on your plate today. And you and I are already too easily disturbed and distracted by the concerns of today. And so this brings us right back to where we started, the question that I think we need to each wrestle with, and it's this. What are your own personal core values? What things are most important to you? What can you not live without? Next week, we'll begin to ask some of these questions about our church. But today, today it's important for you to take an honest look at your own heart. Do you value the Lord above all else? Is your worship sincere? Is your heart singularly devoted to him? If it's not, then it really doesn't matter what we say over the next weeks. Because it doesn't really matter what we say our church's core values are. Because you're only going to follow the things that you value in your own heart. See, if you're only here today to impress others, or you're only here because you feel you have to live up to their expectations, then you have your reward. There's nothing else for you to gain. If you're concerned about your status and your success and your wealth in this world, then you're trading the blessings of eternity for mere trinkets which will ultimately leave you empty and unsatisfied. If somehow you manage to hang on to them until you die, you will leave them behind for someone else to enjoy. But if you turn away from yourself, if you'll turn away from, from your, your self-centered life and you'll turn to the one who died for you, the one who rose again, then not only will he forgive you and cleanse your sins, but he'll be your strength and your guide. That's the promise that we have in Matthew chapter 6. But it's time for you to choose. So please, choose wisely. Let's pray.